I'm dermatologist and hair specialist Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Welcome to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast for the November 7, 2022 issue. This is Season 3, Episode 4. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy and highlights new research in the field of hair loss. We'll use our time together not only to talk about what's new, but we'll reflect carefully on how all this new information ties in with everything we've come to learn in the past, and we'll think carefully about where we're heading in the future as a hair loss community. I'll use various studies each week as a pivot point to discuss key diagnostic pearls and treatment tips that hopefully allow us all to become better practitioners. This podcast was created for practitioners of various backgrounds, but regardless of whether you care for patients with hair loss or simply care about the topic of hair loss, this podcast will be of interest. This podcast was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The first Monday of each month is dedicated to androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata. And today we'll review 13 studies from the past several months in these areas. We'll begin by talking about several studies in androgenetic hair loss, and then we'll move on to studies in alopecia areata. For those who would like a synopsis and an overview, I'll review that with you now. And for those that want more detailed information, stay tuned for the rest of this episode. We'll begin by talking about minoxidil concentrations. Do higher concentrations above 5% do anything? Does 15% minoxidil work better than 5? Does 10% work better than 5? We'll take a look at a review which summarizes the role of higher minoxidil concentrations in treating androgenetic hair loss, and we'll come to see that maybe, just maybe, those higher concentrations might work better, but they come at a risk, perhaps, of irritation, palpitations, hypertrichosis, We'll dive into that a little deeper. We'll take a look at JAK inhibitors for treating androgenetic hair loss. There's been some debate in the literature about whether JAK inhibitors might be a promising treatment for androgenetic hair loss. And certainly those companies that bought the rights to JAK inhibitors have wondered, gee, maybe they're not only effective for alopecia areata, but maybe some of these JAK inhibitor therapies might help androgenetic hair loss. Well, a very nice study suggests that at least in small number of patients, probably doesn't promote growth in androgenetic hair loss. We'll take a look at that very important study. Then we'll go on to look at Botox for treating androgenetic hair loss. It's been about a decade since the first studies came out suggesting that, hey, maybe Botox might help androgenetic hair loss. We'll take a look at a nice review summarizing Botox for androgenetic hair loss and the suggestion here that Maybe it's on the list. Might not be a first-line treatment, of course, but maybe it deserves a spot on the list of therapies for androgenetic hair loss. Then we'll go on to look at two important meta-analyses looking at PRP for treating androgenetic hair loss. The first meta-analysis looking at PRP for androgenetic hair loss in a a number of studies, but the second being a meta-analysis in women specifically. Then we'll go on to look at fluid retention with low-dose oral minoxidil and a very nice case report which highlights the possibility of 
fluid retention, pleural effusions, pericardial effusions, meaning fluid around the lungs and the heart, as well as widespread fluid retention called anasarca. In a patient receiving 0.25 milligrams of oral minoxidil. A very valuable study which reminds us that if you're going to use oral minoxidil, please be aware of the side effects, please counsel patients, and please have a plan in place when these side effects occur. We'll take a look at that very important case report from South Africa, and I think this is a wonderful study for us to all know about. Then we'll take a look at a study by Dr. Gupta looking at low-dose oral minoxidil dosing and a very nice meta-analysis looking at the effect of higher doses on efficacy as well as side effects. And we'll see that as you go up on oral minoxidil dose, yes, you get thicker hairs, you get more hairs in the context of treating androgenetic hair loss, but you get more side effects. And we'll take a look at that dose relationship between low-dose oral minoxidil and efficacy and side effects. Very valuable study for us to all know about. Then we'll shift our attention and look at alopecia areata. We'll begin first by looking at a very important study addressing the risk of venous thromboembolism or blood clots with JAK inhibitors. You are all aware of the oral surveillance study which taught us that in rheumatoid arthritis patients, 50 years of age and over, that JAK inhibitors may carry a risk of venous thromboembolism, as well as cancer, as well as cardiac disease. And the FDA has been pretty serious that all JAK inhibitors need a stamp, whether it's tofacitinib, uh, baricitinib, Upatacitinib, any of the JAK inhibitors need a stamp saying that they come with this possibility of venous thromboembolism, cardiac disease, cancer, um, mortality. The question is now arising, does the use of JAK inhibitors in other disease models like alopecia areata, like frontal fibrosing alopecia, like atopic dermatitis, like vitiligo, does the use of JAK inhibitors in these other disease models also carry a risk of all these issues? We'll take a look at an important study of JAK inhibitors in atopic dermatitis and the study showing that in atopic dermatitis, there does not seem to be a risk. Then we'll go on to take a look at the prevalence of alopecia areata in Japan. There have been a number of studies, although not all studies, but a number of studies suggesting that alopecia areata prevalence may be increasing in some areas of the world. And we've reviewed on previous podcasts that alopecia areata may be increasing in children in the U.S. There's some thought in recent studies that alopecia areata prevalence may be increasing in certain parts of Africa, for example, and parts of the Middle East. This is a nice study looking at prevalence in Japan and a study showing that alopecia areata over a 10-year period approximately may be increasing. And finally, we'll talk about the relationship between COVID vaccines and alopecia areata and we'll take a look at four important studies that I'd like you to know about. We'll take a look at a study addressing the development of alopecia areata after COVID vaccines in patients that had no prior history. 
This adds to our list and growing body of studies suggesting that some patients with no prior history can develop alopecia areata after vaccines. Then we'll take a look at a study which was a survey-based study suggesting that a significant number of patients surveyed with alopecia areata had flares of their alopecia areata after COVID infection and after receiving vaccines. Then we'll take a look at a very nice study looking at 49 patients on JAK inhibitors with alopecia areata who had COVID vaccines. 6% of those patients flared after receiving a COVID vaccine. This is a really wonderful study because it's the first to really give us a number of what might be the risk in a immunosuppressed patient with alopecia areata receiving a COVID vaccine. In this group of pretty stable patients receiving JAK inhibitors, it was 6%. I think that's really important. It's not 0.6%, it's not 0.06%, it's not 0.006%, it's 6%. So we'll take a look at that study and we'll draw some conclusions in this small study. And it's really one of a kind to give us some numbers in a more carefully controlled study. Studies in the past have largely been, hey, I have this patient, had alopecia areata, got worse. But we call those case reports and case series. Those have largely been the studies in the literature. Here we have a group of patients uh, in a more controlled manner, giving us a number and a risk that we can then go on to share with patients. I think this is an important study. And study number four is two patients with alopecia areata who had a significant flare of their disease after receiving COVID vaccination. And these patients had quite refractory disease and didn't respond to the prior treatments that they responded to. And so we'll take a look at these four COVID vaccine related studies and we'll draw some conclusions. The references for all these studies are in the show notes that accompany this episode. So let's begin then with studies of androgenetic hair loss, beginning first with studies addressing doses higher than 5%. Do you prescribe 7% minoxidil? Do you prescribe 10% minoxidil? Well, I certainly see patients with anywhere from 1% minoxidil to 30% minoxidil. And you can get 30% minoxidil out there. Now, do keep in mind that these are off-label doses, and do keep in mind that the FDA has said that we don't want companies selling high doses of minoxidil. Um, and so there was a crackdown a number of years ago on, on companies selling very high doses. Um, but do these high doses really work better than the low doses? When I prescribe off-label dosing of 7% minoxidil, my pharmacy says, yeah, we can do that for you, Jeff, no problem. When I prescribe 10% minoxidil, my pharmacist calls me and says, Jeff, do you know that once you go beyond 7%, 8%, I can't just, I can't get the minoxidil to dissolve in the propylene glycol. And so then it becomes a discussion about, can we use some other kind of vehicle? You compounding pharmacies have all these wonderful technologies for foams and creams and liposomes and lotions and, and you name it. Can we somehow squeeze 10% into some fancy vehicle that you have behind the counter? And sometimes the pharmacist says, sure, we can do that. We can do 10, we can do 15. The question then becomes, are these effective or is this just a number that makes the doctor and patient feel good? Oh, wow, I'm using 15% minoxidil. That should be three times better than 5%. So 
What is the data? Well, a very nice study by Singh and colleagues published in Clinical Experimental Dermatology in November reviewed prior studies looking at higher than 5% doses. So we all know minoxidil is approved by the FDA for treating androgenetic hair loss in males and females. It's really important to be aware, and I'm sure many listeners are aware, but when you put minoxidil on the scalp, it's not ready to go. It's not active. It has to become activated by undergoing transformation by enzymes in the scalp. And there's sulfotransferase enzymes, SULT1A1, in the suprabulbar area of hair follicles in the outer root sheath that transforms minoxidil to minoxidil sulfate. And it's that minoxidil sulfate that's then ready to go to trigger hair follicle growth and all the other methods and ways that we know minoxidil works. And we know from studies in 2020, including a number of good studies by Dr. Ramos and colleagues, that uh, about 60% of the population has low sulfotransferase activity in the suprabulbar aspect of the outer root sheath. So 5% minoxidil is clearly better than 2% minoxidil. And if you don't know about Olson and colleagues' 2002 landmark study in JAD, you should know about it. It was really the pivotal study in 2002 that suggested that, attention please, 5% is better than 2%. 2% was the first studied minoxidil. That was a first approved for males. And then 5% came out, and the concern was that, well, maybe 5% is not better, and maybe 5% is not safe. You do have to remember when topical minoxidil came to market, there was a lot of concern about using topical minoxidil and would there be cardiac effects? Would there be concerns? And so these studies were really, really important. The early days of using topical minoxidil were, were bumpy. And it, it sounds silly now because we use minoxidil all the time. But these were really important studies in 2002 showing us that, yes, 5% is better than 2% in men. And after that point, 2% in men was really not commonly used. So the question is, is 5% less effective than 10%? And should we be using 10%, 20%? And so it's certainly been proposed by some that higher concentrations of minoxidil work better. I think we really need good data to answer the question, should we be using higher concentrations of minoxidil? And if we do, are we increasing the chance that our patient gets side effects? So what are the problems with using higher concentrations? Well, I mentioned some. As we go up on the dose, it doesn't always stay in solution. So there are patients who get 5% minoxidil compounded specially, and they notice it's crystallizing out, especially as months go by and it evaporates. Well, that's a big issue with higher doses of minoxidil. It doesn't stay in solution necessarily, especially if propylene glycol is the, the vehicle. And as you go beyond 7%, 8%, minoxidil doesn't become a soluble in propylene glycol. And there's a possibility that higher concentrations increase the chances of seborrheic dermatitis, irritant contact dermatitis, headaches, tachycardia, hypertrichosis. So we need to be aware of these. We can get minoxidil in many concentrations. And I see patients with 30% minoxidil. I see patients with 15% minoxidil. 
So the question is, are these higher doses effective? Well, Singh and colleagues reviewed three prior studies. And I think it's important for us to know about these three prior studies, so let's dive into it. McCoy and colleagues published a study in 2016, which was one of the earliest studies examining high doses of topical minoxidil. But this is a study in 2016 looking at 15% minoxidil compared to 5% minoxidil. This was a very short 12-week study in women with androgenetic hair loss who weren't responding to 5% minoxidil. These women were then given 15% minoxidil. You didn't respond to 5% minoxidil, let's see how you do with 15% minoxidil. Well, 60% of the patients went on to respond to 15% minoxidil when they hadn't responded to 5% minoxidil. So at that 12-week time point, that's just three months, 60% achieved a clinically significant response based on target area hair counts, 13% above baseline, and there was an improvement in photography. Really important study. McCoy and colleagues, 2016, higher doses of minoxidil actually helped women that were non-responders to 5% minoxidil. Goldust and colleagues in 2020 published a randomized clinical trial of 66 patients. Now, Goldust is also the author on this current review. So in that 2020 study by Goldust and colleagues, the goal was to compare twice daily 15% minoxidil to the standard 5% minoxidil twice daily over 24 weeks. What Goldust and colleagues showed is that 15% minoxidil worked better than 5%. And it worked better at 12 weeks, 3 months. And it worked better at 24 weeks, 6 months. And side effects were pretty similar in the two groups, and they weren't increased in the 15% group. So 15% solution twice daily, better than 5%. Gonami and colleagues in 2021 published a 36-week randomized placebo-controlled trial. At the end of the 36 weeks, hair counts were higher in the 5% group than the 10% group, and higher than placebo. So here, 5% minoxidil worked better than 10% minoxidil. There was an improvement in global photography in the 5% and the 10% group, and they seemed pretty similar. And those are photographs taken above the scalp with a camera. So in terms of hair counts, 10% minoxidil seemed not as effective as 5%. Side effects were higher in the 10% group. Hair shedding, contact dermatitis, hypertrichosis. So here we have a study suggesting that don't use 10%, use 5%, it's better. So that was uh, a study which having had different views than the prior two studies. So we have these three studies. I think it's important to know about these studies. The overwhelming suggestion here is that maybe, just maybe, higher concentrations could be effective. These are small studies, short duration, small sample sizes, but there's a hint of a suggestion that maybe higher concentrations may be more effective. And patients who fail to respond to topical minoxidil, there's at least some data suggesting that it may be worthwhile to try topical minoxidil at higher concentrations. That might come with an increased risk of irritation, shedding, hypertrichosis, palpitations. So you need to 
advise your patient of that. It's not clear. And it's important to remember that there are 97,000 formulations of topical minoxidil. You can make it up in 30% propylene glycol, 29% propylene glycol, 28% propylene glycol, no propylene glycol. You can heat it one minute. You can heat it 1.2 minutes. You can heat it 10 minutes. You can heat it over a Bunsen burner. You can heat it over a stove. There are an enormous amount of different protocols for making up topical minoxidil. You can make it up in a lotion. You can make it up in a cream. You can make it up in a foam. You can make it up in a gel. You can make it up in a, in a mousse. So I think it's really important to respect the fact that there are an enormous amount of different ways to make up topical minoxidil. And so if you read these studies and say, oh, wow, topical minoxidil might work better, and you ring your pharmacy and say, you know what, I want to make up 10, I want you to make up 10% minoxidil, and the pharmacy says, yep, no problem, fax it in, and uh, tell your patient it'll be ready on Wednesday. Remember that you don't necessarily know how it's made up unless you discuss with the pharmacy. And then if you phone another pharmacy next week and say, hey, can you make up 10% minoxidil? Uh, Smitherman's Pharmacy on West 4th can make it up. And that pharmacist says, oh yeah, no problem, we can make that up. You're probably getting two different topical minoxidil formulations. And so it's really important to be aware of that. And I, we probably have in the clinic 200 topical minoxidil formulations. And it's challenging sometimes to know when a patient doesn't respond to minoxidil. Oh, maybe, maybe you shouldn't have got it made up at Westman's Pharmacy. Maybe, just maybe, you should have got it made up at Eastman's Pharmacy. We don't know. These are the early days of topical minoxidil. And I think we just need to respect that compounding chemistry that goes into making these up. And it's a pretty delicate process to make up topical minoxidil. And you may enjoy the conversations with your compounding pharmacy about the challenges of making up topical products. So let's move on then to talk about the role of JAK inhibitors in androgenetic hair loss. We're not talking about JAK inhibitors in alopecia areata here. We're talking about JAK inhibitors in androgenetic hair loss. And so when JAK inhibitors were first becoming a topic in 2015, 16. The question then became, gee, I wonder if JAK inhibitors could have a role in other areas of hair loss medicine. And one of the important conversations was androgenetic hair loss. And there was some suggestion that maybe, just maybe, it could have a role in androgenetic hair loss. And Companies that bought up rights to the JAK inhibitors expressed an interest that we're not only going to look at these in alopecia areata, but we're going to look at them in, in other areas of hair loss, including androgenetic hair loss. And it's been an important subject. And there are many patients with androgenetic hair loss, male balding, that say to me, I want to try a JAK inhibitor. I've read all the forums, all the blogs online. I, th I think I can benefit from a JAK inhibitor. What do you think? And my general response has been, well, we don't really have any evidence that JAK inhibitors help. And some of the uh, leaders in 
jack inhibitor pharmacology and jack inhibitor use have suggested that a they work great in alopecia areata but we don't see our male balding patients and our female pattern hair loss patients getting a lot better after using jack inhibitors for alopecia areata their alopecia areata improves but their balding doesn't improve but those are anecdotal those are stories those are not controlled studies so Casale and colleagues published a very nice study in the International Journal of Dermatology looking at, are JAK kinase inhibitors beneficial in the treatment of androgenetic hair loss? That's their title. And so they set out to look at, are JAK kinase inhibitors beneficial in the treatment of androgenetic hair loss? So we know JAK inhibitors are a real important uh, treatment for alopecia areata. We have baricitinib now approved for alopecia areata, June 13th, 2022 really important date. But do they help out androgenetic hair loss? Well, Casale and colleagues set out to look at this very question. They retrospectively assessed hair loss in adult men who were on oral JAK inhibitors for at least 24 weeks for various indications, and they looked at did their alopecia areata improve if they were using these drugs for alopecia areata? And if they had androgenetic hair loss, did by any chance that androgenetic alopecia improve? If they were using the JAK inhibitor for some other reason, did the androgenetic hair loss that they happened to have improve? Patients stayed on a constant dose of JAK inhibitors. They didn't use other medications. The authors used clinical photography to assess the severity of androgenetic hair loss every 12 weeks for the duration of treatment. There was 18 men in this study, average age 41, ranged from 20 to 71 years of age. Average duration of treatment was 66 weeks, ranging from six months all the way up to almost two years. So pretty long follow-up. Not seven years, but reasonable follow-up. And patients were using various types of JAK inhibitors, 14 were using JAK inhibitors for treating their alopecia areata. 10 were on a JAK1, JAK2 inhibitor. 4 were on a JAK3 inhibitor. 4 patients were using the JAK inhibitor for vitiligo, atopic dermatitis, and that included a JAK1 inhibitor and 3 using a JAK3 inhibitor. So we have 14 men using JAK inhibitors for some other reason, but the authors said, hey, let's look back and see if their androgenetic hair loss app actually improved. So patients that were using these JAK inhibitors for alopecia areata had an improvement in their alopecia areata, but none of the patients had an improvement in their male balding. There was no improvement in the Hamilton-Norwood scale. The authors pointed out that they didn't have an improvement, but they didn't seem to get worse during that 66-week follow-up on average. So it's a nice study which suggests that you know, probably these JAK inhibitors, at least the ones we have now in 2022, probably don't have a big effect on male balding. Sure, we can't rule out the possibility, as the authors tell us, that it didn't prevent hair loss, but not a really long follow-up. We know that male balding can uh, go pretty slowly sometimes. It can go in waves. It can speed up, slow down, speed up, slow down. So... The maximum follow-up was two years here. Patients range from 24 weeks to 100 weeks. So 
Maybe not long enough to really get a sense if it prevented hair loss, but it didn't seem to help male balding. So I think this is a really important study. There are a lot of people out there who are wondering, and they may not tell you, but they're wondering if a JAK inhibitor could help their male balding. And I don't know if you've been asked, but I've been asked many times by patients with male balding and female hair loss, I'd like to go on a JAK inhibitor. I want you to prescribe me tofacitinib. I want you to prescribe me baricitinib. And my answer is generally, no, I'm not comfortable doing that. We don't have any evidence. And I'm not going to give you a JAK inhibitor for your male balding if we don't have evidence. First, it's not FDA approved. Second, it's off-label. Third, we don't have any evidence. And if you go on to develop a blood clot, we don't know if there's an increased risk of blood clot in patients using JAK inhibitors for male balding, an infection, cancer. We don't know if there's an increased risk of cancer. Heart disease, change in your cholesterol, change in your blood counts, then that's not a good thing, especially when we don't know if it works at all. So this is a study which allows us to at least say that JAK inhibitors don't seem to work for male balding right now. Study of 18 patients, limited follow-up, but a really important study, and I congratulate these authors. This is a much-needed study which answers a key question that many, many patients are asking. JAK inhibitors might not be a method, but what about Botox? I really like this study by English and Ruiz in Skin Dependage Disorders, March 2022, and I want to review it with you. A study which looked at uh, the use of Botox for treating androgenetic hair loss. It was a systematic review. It was about a decade ago that um, I remember reading some studies in the plastic surgery literature suggesting that Botox could help androgenetic hair loss. And my feeling after reading that study was, really? Botox could help androgenetic hair loss? Go figure. And there's been several studies that have suggested that this is not quite far-fetched. Or as we say, this is not quite left field. And so I'd like to review this very nice systematic review, which set out to address this question, does Botox help androgenetic hair loss? English and Ruiz summarized the data on Botox for androgenetic hair loss. They did a very nice job. And so they conducted a literature review of studies addressing the use of Botox for androgenetic hair loss. And they included five studies. That was four prospective cohort studies and one randomized study. The study length was 24 to 60 weeks. No study had a control group or compared Botox injections against approved treatments like finasteride, like minoxidil. So we have to keep that in mind. There are limitations for these Botox studies, but in total there was 165 participants who could be reviewed. Ages ranged from 19 to 57, all had androgenetic hair loss. This was a review of Botox for androgenetic hair loss. Number of sessions ranged from just one to five. And how many units were used? I think that's really a key question. 30 to 150 per session. And the frequency of injection sessions ranged from three weeks to five months. One study looked at the use of the injections into the balding areas, and four studies looked at the use of Botox into the muscles, to relax the muscles. Not so much focused on the hair loss, but to relax the muscles, including injections into the frontalis, temporalis, 
uh, periauricular and occipitalis areas. Here's the key. Response rate, rates range from 75 to 79%. Hair counts range from an increase of 18 to 20%. And there didn't seem to be any adverse, serious adverse side effects with Botox in these studies. Botox is on the list of my list of treatments. It's sitting in the third line list, third line group, where we have first line treatments like minoxidil, oral minoxidil, topical minoxidil, finasteride, topical finasteride. But Botox is sitting down there in the third list bucket. It's an option. It's an off-label option. I think it's hard to exclude that it's useless. I think there's data here that suggests that, yes, Botox is, is on the list as a possible option. And I think this is a nice study which brings it all together and suggests that it's there on the list. Certainly in patients with highly refractory androgenetic hair loss or patients that can't use finasteride or minoxidil or dutasteride and they've used laser, they've used PRP, they've used these treatments. Sometimes we will discuss off-label uses like Botox. And I think there's data here to support it. I think you have to be comfortable with injecting Botox. I think you have to be comfortable making it up and reconstituting it. It's not difficult. With a little bit of experience, it, it, it can be something that can be done quite easily. And this data suggests that pretty good safety. And this data suggests that it's possible that it may help some of our patients. So why does Botox help? Well, I don't think we know. I think there's at least some suggestion of why it could help. Sean and colleagues in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology in 2020 suggested that maybe it's because Botox downregulates TGF-beta. TGF-beta seems to be a key chemical that promotes miniaturization of hair follicles, promotes a shortening of the antigen phase, and promotes the ability to inhibit hair growth in general. And so Botox might downregulate TGF-beta expression in the dermal papilla cells based on that Sean et al. 2020 study. Some have proposed that Botox helps inhibit the muscular contractions. And some have proposed that these contractions of these various muscles impair blood flow and they pinch these vascular networks all over the scalp. And that leads to hypoxia, and that leads to promoting uh, miniaturization, promoting an inhibition of the dermal papilla cells to do their job. And by relaxing these muscles, we promote blood flow and we promote a reoxygenation of the precious scalp. Sounds possible. These are somewhat theories, but they're pretty reasonable based on the basic lab studies that go behind it. And it's been proposed that by reducing tension across, across the gallia, aponecrotica, that perhaps we reduce pressure in tissues. And when we have strain of tissues, we increase oxidation. We increase oxidative stress, and that increases DHT and TGF-beta. So there's at least some data here suggesting that relaxing muscles, we, we improve blood flow, we might reduce oxidative stress, and we might reduce TGF-beta. So a really interesting uh, group of studies suggesting that 
Botoxes on the list. I think we need more studies to know exactly how best to perform Botox, where to place it in the treatments, whether there's any possibility that Botox could enhance or impair the current treatments that we do. But I think it's there on the list, and I think it deserves more study. And um, it's certainly something that I've recommended off-label to patients occasionally. Certainly not every day, not every week, not every month. But I have recommended Botox many times. A very nice study by Gupta and colleagues, and then we'll take a look at another study as well, have looked at two meta-analyses for PRP, platelet-rich plasma. PRP is recognized as a treatment for androgenetic hair loss. It involves taking a person's own blood, spinning it down, injecting it back in the scalp. Before it's injected, it might be activated with various things, calcium, um, as well as other potential activators. It's not FDA approved. The FDA has said it's an autologous product. It's from the patient's own blood. So we're not going to go out uh, we're not going to set about trying to approve it and regulate it because it's coming from the patient's own blood. As a result of that, there are at least 500 different techniques. And if you really were to get serious about counting the number of different techniques, there's probably 10,000, 50,000 different techniques. There's different machines. There's different amounts to collect from the patients. There's different ways to centrifuge it. So even if I have centrifuge A, from company A, I can change my settings many, many different ways. There's different ways to activate it. There's different amount of activation that can occur. You can activate it with calcium chloride. You can activate it with a little bit of calcium chloride. You can act, or calcium gluconate. You can activate it with a medium amount of calcium. You can activate it with a lot of calcium. You can put a little bit of anticoagulant in your blood before you spin it down. You can put a lot of anticoagulant in your blood before you spin it down. You can inject with a 30 gauge needle. You can inject with a 32 gauge needle. You can inject with a 25 gauge needle. You can inject a lot per square centimeter. You can inject a little per square centimeter. You can freeze the scalp before you inject. You can freeze the scalp and use um, vibration before you inject. There are an endless number of different protocols for PRP, and I think we need to respect that. The way I do PRP is different than you do PRP. And the way I do PRP this year is different than the way I do PRP last year. So we, we really have to be aware of that. There's all these different protocols for performing PRP. And so these authors set out to perform a network meta-analysis, meta-regression study, to determine which treatment protocols seem to work best and which are not as good. And Dr. Gupta and colleagues are really experts in handling big data, these meta-analyses. And these are very valuable studies. So they systematically reviewed the medical literature to obtain relevant studies. And they conducted a multivariable meta-regression and network meta-analyses. They used sophisticated calculations to crunch some good data, looking at how do we summarize all this data in the literature, which is seemingly all over the place seemingly different quality of studies. So there's 25 trials that met the author's eligibility criteria, and there was 10 unique PRP regimens that were ultimately used in their calculations to crunch the data. Dr. Gupta and colleagues suggest that PRP works better 
when. Drum roll. Patients have more PRP sessions. They come in the clinic more often. In other words, they come in monthly rather than yearly. The practitioner chemically activates the PRP rather than decides not to activate it. When the PRP machine you're using allows for a double centrifugation method. When your patient is younger than older, it's probably going to work better. And when your patient is female rather than male, it has a greater chance of working. So that doesn't mean that male patients don't benefit, not at all. Doesn't mean that a patient 65 doesn't benefit compared to a 25, not at all. But statistically speaking, if you were to place a bet, PRP is going to work better in a patient that's going to come into clinic more often. When you are going to chemically activate the PRP, when you are going to use a double centrifugation method, and when the patient in front of you is younger, and when the patient in front of you is female, your odds are better that PRP is going to work. So it's a helpful study. Studies of PRP are generally quite small. They lack controls. The methodology is, is somewhat challenging to interpret sometimes. So we have to be careful when we interpret these, these data. Studies are small. But this is a helpful um, study which uh, gives us a starting point as we think about PRP in a little more detail. The FDA doesn't regulate it. And so when the FDA doesn't regulate it, um, that means that you're free to do what you want. Of course, you have to be safe. You have to use methodology that is somewhat similar to your colleagues. We have to practice good medicine. We have to practice infe infection control. Yes, but there's a lot of variability on what we can do. This study suggests that let's pay attention to some of this information and how we summarize it so far, that if you're going to recommend PRP yearly, that may not be in keeping with what data is teaching us that maybe recommending PRP a little more often is going to be beneficial. And maybe we have to reevaluate how we centrifuge and how we activate PRP. Another meta-analysis meta study in the Journal of Dermatologic Treatment in October looked at PRP in women and performed a systematic review. The authors of this study used seven studies in their meta-analysis. Three of those studies had a placebo group. Four of the studies did not. But the meta-analysis showed that PRP treatments increased hair density compared to controls. In their study, in their meta-analysis, it didn't seem like PRP increased hair thickness, but it did increase hair density, and satisfaction was generally quite high. So there was no major side effects in their meta-analysis, but there were some mild side effects that they share in their report. Patients can expect headaches, mild pain, edema, tenderness, redness, bleeding, but no major side effects. The authors um, were not able to perform a meta-analysis on these side effects because there's just not enough quantitative data. But nevertheless, their meta-analyses of these seven studies suggested that PRP increases hair density. I, I always find it interesting when these PRP studies fail to comment on shedding. It's really hard to find studies in the literature that report shedding after PRP as a side effect. But I don't think there's a day of the calendar year that doesn't go by where some patient post-PRP somewhere in the world is telling me about their shedding post-PRP. So why aren't these studies talked about? Why aren't these side effects talked about? I have no idea. 
But shedding is definitely a side effect of PRP. It's a side effect of many treatments. It's a side effect of our laser therapies. It's a side effect of topical minoxidil. It's a side effect of, of spironolactone. It's a side effect of oral minoxidil. We, we don't care to talk about hair shedding as a side effect of some of these treatments, but we should. This nice meta-analysis suggesting to us that PRP can be helpful in women helps hair density. And this was a meta-analysis based on 170 patients. Seven studies, only three had a placebo and so we have to bear that in mind. We really would love to see a very large study with a single protocol, with a placebo, and um, not a split scalp study, but rather a, a study with just placebo, just PRP, large numbers. It really would add to our literature to understand the, the true value of PRP. We have these 150,000 different protocols, and one certainly wonders whether the whether we will ever end the the madness of the PRP protocol that we have, and it's a challenging area to study because of all the, the different protocols that we have. So we move now to talk about oral minoxidil, and I'd like to share two studies of oral minoxidil with you. The first from South Africa by Dr. Glova and colleagues. This is a really important study. The title, pericardial, pleural effusion, and anasarca, a rare complication of low-dose oral minoxidil for hair loss. So this is published in JAD case reports in August. A really nice study of a patient developing significant fluid retention, causing fluid retention around the heart, around the lungs, throughout the body and the soft tissues from not one milligram of oral minoxidil, not two milligrams, not five, but 0 0.25. And so really teaching us that this is a side effect for us to be aware of, and it can occur with very, very, very low doses. The very low dose oral minoxidil rather than low dose oral minoxidil. So low dose oral minoxidil is increasingly used. Low-dose oral minoxidil is really taking off. It's taken off since the summer. The interest in low-dose oral minoxidil in the U.S. is just skyrocketing. There is a general feeling that it's it's really safe, and it's it's so safe, and it's been hidden from the public, and everybody should be on it. Well, it's not so safe, and it's not that everybody should be on it. It is a valid treatment, and it is wonderful in the right patient, and it's helping many, many people. But it is a compound, it needs to be respected, and the dose needs to be respected. So we need a healthy respect for low-dose oral minoxidil. And the interest is astronomical, and we are, we are the interest is really taking off. And this study by Dr. Glova sort of reels us all back in to sit ourselves back down and say, okay, 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 we need to know about some of these side effects. We need to counsel patients. So let's dive into this study. Thank you, Dr. Delova, for this valuable study. So we know low-dose oral minoxidil can cause side effects, hypertrichosis, headaches, shedding, fluid retention. The side effects of oral minoxidil include increased body hair, increased facial hair, hives. It's harmful to a baby, so we can't use it in pregnancy. Headaches, feet swelling facial swelling, fluid retention, shortness of breath, palpitations, chest tightness, dizziness. So there are, 
there are these side effects with oral minoxidil. Some patients use oral minoxidil and say to me, I got this chest tightness and it's very uncomfortable. Well, we can either stop or we can go down. Sometimes when we go down on the dose, it resolves. And so we have to be aware of these side effects. We have to counsel patients before they start. And we have to teach patients, if you develop some of these side effects, I want you to stop and I want you to, uh, you know, get medical attention or let us know. So Dr. Delova published a very nice report highlighting the possibility of significant fluid retention, not only in the feet, but around the heart, around the lungs, and in the soft tissues in a healthy woman age 40. So the report is that of a 40-year-old healthy African woman with frontal fibrosing alopecia who developed this significant fluid retention three weeks after low-dose oral minoxidil. She had FFA, frontal fibrosing alopecia. She was treated with minoxidil, tacrolimus, clobetazole. These are all topical treatments, as well as doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice daily, and oral minoxidil, 0.25 milligrams. That's a really low dose. After three weeks of treatment, the patient developed swelling in the lower extremities, and this spread to the upper extremities and also to the face. She was advised to stop oral minoxidil, get into clinic to get into seek medical attention, and so she went to hospital. She was admitted and she was followed and treated by cardiologists. And so this is available free online by JAD Case Reports. And uh, you know some of these journals nowadays are really promoting these studies free online with their Creative Commons license, and this is wonderful. And I think that uh, we collectively as a medical society are going to do really well in advancing science with this type of availability of medical information. And so check out the DeLova study. You can see some very nice photographs of this periorbital edema, of this fluid retention. And while she was in hospital, this 40-year-old patient was followed by cardiology. There was swelling throughout the body. And we call this anasarca when you have this dramatic collection of fluid in the soft tissues. She had swelling around the face, around the eyes, in the abdominal wall. The patient's cardiac exam showed a regular pulse, normal blood pressure, heart sounds were normal. And that's really wonderful. It's a low-dose oral minoxidil in a healthy patient. She tolerated it well, but she had this fluid retention. Ultrasound showed all of this fluid accumulating in the lungs, in the abdomen, in the pericardium. She had an echo. There was no tamponade, meaning that the fluid around the pericardial sac or the pericardial effusion she had was not limiting the ability of the heart to beat, beat, beat and we call that tamponade. So she didn't have tamponade, but she had fluid around the heart. She was treated with IV furosemide, which is a very common diuretic, which flushes fluid out of the body. And she was treated with IV for four days. Uh, IV furosemide often uh, not only allows fluid to go out of the body, but it allows potassium to go out of the body. So she had potassium replacement. The edema resolved and she was discharged home, and this fluid resolved completely. The ending here is really great. It's a very happy ending. The message here is really important. Low-dose oral minoxidil is very much on, on the list of treatments for many hair loss conditions. It really is changing the way we treat many types of hair loss. 
I think we need to counsel patients on potential side effects, and I think we need to counsel patients on not only you may develop this side effect, but what do you do if you develop the side effect? Mrs. Gregory, you may develop swelling in your feet from low-dose oral minoxidil. That's a very different recommendation than Mrs. Gregory, you may develop swelling in your feet from low-dose oral minoxidil, and if your shoes don't fit, don't go out and buy bigger-sized shoes. Please contact us. I think that's really important. We have to advise patients on what to do if they develop these side effects. And so I congratulate Dr. Delova for sharing this study. Um, I think it's really important that we share studies of good and bad, and it's always nice when the outcomes are good, but we need to be aware of this fluid retention. We often think we can start oral minoxidil at, in women at 0.25 or, or 0.625 and then go up to 1.25. We often think as we go towards 2.5, we increase the chances of fluid retention, swelling in the feet. I think this study reminds us that that could be a side effect of 0.25 milligrams. What is the chance of swelling with low-dose oral minoxidil? Well, a nice review by Randolph and Tosti told us that maybe 3%. So 3% of our patients can have swelling in the feet, and that seems to be a highest risk with 5 milligram doses. So I don't think we should fall into the trap of feeling that, okay, okay, as long as I'm under 5 milligrams, I'm probably not going to have this risk of fluid retention in my patient. I think we have to respect the dosing and be aware of it. The early days of using minoxidil for treating blood pressure in the 1970s and 80s were fraught with problems with fluid retention. But remember, those were 10 milligram and 50 milligram doses. Those are the doses that, that really lower blood pressure. Pericardial effusions, pleural effusions, were very much a part of the high-dose oral minoxidil days, and it occurred in 3% of patients. We still get fluid, fluid retention with low-dose oral minoxidil, i.e. under 5 milligrams. And it's thought to occur in 3% of patients. And it's thought to be more limited to the feet. But I think we have to be aware of this possibility of more widespread fluid retention. So what are some key take-home points? Well, I think going slowly on oral minoxidil is really important. There are many practitioners that start 2.5 milligrams in women. And I'm not to say that's right or wrong. But I think that we really should respect the fact that fluid retention can occur. Some patients can become quite dizzy and hypotensive on 2.5 milligrams, females. So starting a lower dose probably makes more sense. This is an off-label treatment. In women, starting 0.625 or 0.25, whatever your comfort is, and slowly going up to 1.25 probably makes sense. Remember, it takes three months before you see some of the fluid retention, hypertrichosis. It can be faster. But it takes a while. So making these jumps too quickly is often not advised. In men, starting 1.25 or 2.5 probably makes a lot of sense. There are many men that don't feel good on 5 milligrams. They feel chest tightness. They feel dizzy. They feel, they feel like they're having a heart attack. They're not, in most cases, of course. But starting 1.25 or, or 2.5 is probably more logical in males. The other take-home point is to remind patients, if you get a side effect, let us know. If you develop lymedema, let us know. 
Uh, don't go out and buy new shoes. Let us know. We'll decide whether we should stop oral minoxidil or go down on the dose. Or rarely, rarely, rarely will pursue diuretic treatment for a short period of time. But I think we need to respect when a patient says, Hey doc, I'm just letting you know, I've got fluid retention in my feet. It's not too bad. The answer is not, oh, okay, that's great. I'm so, I'm so glad it's not too bad. I'll see you in six months at your appointment. The key point here is that I'm glad it's not too bad. Can you please update me in a week or two how it is? We know from this DeLova study that, hey doc, I have a little bit of swelling in my feet, could progress to, hey doc, I have a little bit of swelling in my feet, in my abdomen, in my eyes, and around my heart. That's rare, of course, but I think we have to remember that we need to respect these side effects. For most patients, a little bit of swelling in the feet actually resolves when you continue the medication. So we don't need to panic necessarily when we see swelling in the feet. But I think we need a healthy respect for these side effects, and I think we need to advise our patients what to do. Prescribing low-dose oral minoxidil takes a bit of counseling. And the approach is that these are side effects which can occur. They don't occur that often. I'm here to help you if they do occur. But they do occur. If a patient has spent $8,000 on laser treatment and says, if I get one more hair on my face, it's not going to be good. Well, guess what? Oral minoxidil is not a good option. And we, we need to make patients aware of this. Um, there are side effects of oral minoxidil. Let's lay them out. Let's give a plan on what to do. Let's allow this to continue to be a really great treatment for our patients. A study by Gupta and colleagues looked at the relationship between the dose of oral minoxidil and its efficacy and side effects. Study in skin, skin appendage disorders, 2022. We know... Low-dose oral minoxidil is on the list of treatments for androgenetic hair loss. By low-dose, we mean under 5 milligrams, 5 or under. And generally, in the medical community, we use 0.25 right up to 5. So the authors here set out to determine the safety and efficacy of low-dose oral minoxidil and how it relates to dose. So they performed systematic searches in PubMed, Scopus, and they found six studies which were eligible for punching into the calculator. The authors found that after six months of use for patients with androgenetic hair loss, if you increase the dose of low-dose oral minoxidil by one milligram, you will have an increase in hair diameter by 1.4 micrometers. You will have an increase in total hair density of 47 hairs per centimeter squared. That includes terminal and vellus hairs. And you will have an increase in terminal hair density of 9.1 hairs per centimeter squared. So that is the effect of increasing your dose of oral minoxidil by one milligram. After six months of use for androgenetic hair loss, if you choose to increase your dose by one milligram, you will have an increased risk of hypertrichosis of 18%. So one out of five patients are going to have more hair by you going about increasing your dose of oral minoxidil. And you'll have an increased risk of cardiovascular effects like hypotension, edema, palpitations, increased heart rate, or an abnormal EKG by 5%. So by going up one milligram, you one out of every 20 patients are going to say, you've caused me to have a cardiovascular side effect.
So I think this is a really valuable study, which gives us some data. Um, what is the effect of increasing the dose by one milligram? Well, we, we increase the chances it's going to work. We increase the chances of getting an increase in total hair density. We increase the chances of improvement in terminal hair density. Those are fairly significant numbers. There's a very small risk of side effects. Hypertrichosis, 18%. Abnormal cardiovascular effects, 5%. The take-home message here is when you have a patient in your clinic and they're doing really well on 1.25 milligrams of oral minoxidil, and they say to you, Doc, this is great. I'm tolerating it well. You've gone, all, you've gone over those side effects with me. You told me I could develop hypertrichosis. I could develop headaches, dizziness, swelling in my feet. You went over all your list with me. You told me what to do if I get these side effects. I'm doing fine. I don't know who gets those side effects, but it's not me. I'm doing great. I want to go up on my dose. This very valuable study here by Dr. Gupta tells us that, okay, okay, Mr. Roger, you want to go up on your dose. By going up on the dose one milligram, there is a significant chance that we're going to increase your hair density. There's an 18% chance we're going to get hypertrichosis. And there's a 5% chance that you're going to say to me, hey, I'm dizzy. I've got swelling in my feet. I've got palpitations. Those are the statistics. Those are valuable numbers. Those give us guidance in terms of what to tell Mr. Roger. And so I think this is really valuable. There's a low chance of cardiovascular effects. 5% is pretty low. There's a low chance of hypertrichosis. If the patient doesn't want hypertrichosis, um, that's an issue. One in five chance is not insignificant. So we have numbers. And so I think these are really valuable studies. These, these large data type studies that Dr. Gupta is an expert in really evaluating these kind of numbers is really valuable for us all. Going up on the dose increases the chance it will work. Going up on the dose increases the chance of side effects. So we turn now to studies in alopecia areata. And so don't hesitate to pause, take a break, come back. We're going to keep going. We have 13 studies to review on this episode. And we're going to turn now to alopecia areata. We'll begin first by talking about blood clots and venous thromboembolism. Jack inhibitors are really taking off. We're using them for alopecia areata. We have baricitinib approved for more significant forms of alopecia areata. And we're going to have more approved in the not-too-distant future. We're using JAK inhibitors for scarring alopecia, frontal fibrosing alopecia, lichen planal pilaris, folliculitis decalvans. The FDA said to us last year, wait, JAK inhibitors may carry a risk of blood clots, venous thromboembolism, heart disease, cancer, increased risk of death, infections. So all JAK inhibitors are going to have this stamp suggesting that there's this risk. So if you're going to bring a JAK inhibitor to market, we're going to stamp you with this risk. And so the key question now moving forward is, okay, there might be this risk in rheumatoid arthritis patients, 50 years of age and over, with cardiovascular risk factors and are tended to be smokers. That was the oral surveillance study. But in a 22-year-old patient with alopecia areata who doesn't have any cardiovascular risk factors and is healthy, doesn't smoke, doesn't have rheumatoid arthritis, they have alopecia areata, does any of this apply? 
do we have to sit down and advise the patient? It might cause, it might cause heart attacks, it might cause blood clots, it might cause cancer, it might cause all these problems. Well, the answer is, is that right now we do. We do have to counsel the patient that way because the FDA tells us this black box warning applies to all these medications. Where we are heading in the near future is for us to better understand specific diseases. When you're giving a JAK inhibitor to a patient with alopecia areata, what is the counseling we need to do? When you're giving a JAK inhibitor to a patient with frontal fibrosing alopecia, what is the counseling we need to do? Right now, the counseling probably should all be the same because that's the data we have. We have a little bit of data coming in from the BRAVE AAA studies, the BRAVE AA studies with baricitinib, which we'll talk about in a minute. But a very nice study in JAMA Dermatology in August looked at the risk of venous thromboembolism, blood clots, in atopic dermatitis patients on JAK inhibitors. And we'll see in this study, we'll see in this study that there wasn't an increased risk of blood clots. And so the key question here moving forward, 2022, 2023, 2024, is does using JAK inhibitors and in other disease models besides rheumatoid arthritis carry an increased risk of blood clots? We're doing these studies because the oral surveillance study has taught us that there's an increased risk of blood clots in rheumatoid arthritis patients, 50 years of age and over with certain risk factors. And it's not clear if we have these risks in other patient populations. So let's talk about the wonderful BRAVE AAA trials. Dr. King and colleagues published these nice studies in the New England Journal earlier this year. The BRAVE AA1 and the BRAVE AA2 were the randomized placebo-controlled trials looking at baricitinib, 4 milligrams, 2 milligrams against placebo in patients with alopecia areata. These studies of about 1,000 patients total, didn't show an increased risk of blood clots. This was a 36-week trial. It wasn't a 36-year trial. It was a trial of about 1,000 patients. It wasn't a trial of 100 million patients. So we have this very, very important study, but it's a limited number and limited follow-up. But it's a very important study. It's a key study in our literature in alopecia areata. And you should know about it. We've covered it on previous episodes of the podcast. But it was a study of 4 milligrams against 2 milligrams against placebo, 598 patients in BRAVE AA1, 490 patients in BRAVE AA2, and that included a mix of placebo, 2 milligrams and 4 milligrams, baricitinib. And that trial led to the approval on June 13th, 2022, of baricitinib for moderate to severe alopecia areata. So no blood clots in the BRAVE AA trials. A new study here looked at the risk of venous thromboembolism in patients with atopic dermatitis receiving JAK inhibitors. So Chen and colleagues performed a review of all these studies. They looked at cohort studies. They looked at randomized controlled trials looking at blood clots in patients with atopic dermatitis. They found two cohort studies, 15 randomized controlled trials, a total of four 166,993 participants were put into their calculations. And overall, there was no significant association between having atopic dermatitis and having a blood clot on JAK inhibitors, a venous thromboembolic event. And so the incident rate of a blood clot was 0.15 per 
for 100 patient years in patients with atopic dermatitis receiving a JAK inhibitor compared to 0.12 patients per 100, 0.12 events per 100 patient years in a patient receiving placebo. And the JAK inhibitors that were studied in atopic dermatitis were abrocitinib, baricitinib, upadacitinib, and a specific JAK inhibitor called SHR0302, which has been studied in Asia. So the data here for atopic dermatitis patients, again, we're trying to get into subgrouping patients. We got some data for rheumatoid arthritis patients, maybe an increased risk of venous thromboembolic events. Now we're in atopic dermatitis patients, doesn't seem to be an increased risk in 499,000 patients studied. We've got the BRAVE AA trials with 1,100 patients, no increased risk. We're waiting now for more data in our hair world. More data in alopecia areata, more data in frontal fibrosing alopecia, more data in folliculitis decalvans, more data in lichen planopilaris. So the key here is, and I think it's so important for all the listeners to be aware of, if you want to know if JAK inhibitors cause blood clots in patients with alopecia areata, then you need to study patients with alopecia areata. And you shouldn't be relying on data from patients with rheumatoid arthritis or atopic dermatitis. Right now, we need to rely on data with other patient groups because that's some of the biggest data that we have. And the FDA has told us, yes, you have to go by this data because that's 10 years of data. And yes, you need to go by this data because we're putting a black box warning on all these JAK inhibitors. But what this data is teaching us is that Okay, let's move forward by studying the risk of blood clots in patients with alopecia areata. Let's study the risk of blood clots in patients with frontal fibrosing alopecia receiving JAK inhibitors. Let's study the risk of cardiovascular disease, infections, um, cancer in patients with alopecia areata, frontal fibrosing alopecia, folliculitis decalvans, lichen planopilaris receiving JAK inhibitors. We desperately need to study these individual patient groups. And so if you want to know if JAK inhibitors cause blood clots in patients with frontal fibrosing alopecia, you need to study frontal fibrosing alopecia. You can't rely on patients with alopecia areata. And you certainly can't rely on patient data from atopic dermatitis and rheumatoid arthritis. Probably the data in FFA is going to be different than alopecia areata. And so you can't really just say, oh, it's another hair disease model. We'll use it in another hair disease. Probably doesn't work that way. So stay tuned. I think 2023, 2024, 2025, 2026, 2027 are all going to be about these specific disease models and coming to understand these risks in other patient populations. The oral surveillance study has really changed the rheumatology field tremendously. And we look to the rheumatology field to understand how to use these medications. I think that's really important, and there's a lot of good work coming out now trying to really understand this. Finally, I'd like to mention to you that there's a really nice review in clinical rheumatology by Misra and colleagues looking at the risk of some of these side effects with various JAK inhibitors. And the authors in Misra and colleagues propose, they offer their opinion that the risk of blood clots might even differ among JAK inhibitors. And tofacitinib may have a different risk of blood clots than baricitinib and upadacitinib. And in this opinion piece, 
which is more than just an opinion piece. It's a, it's a review of data. But Mr. and colleagues even go so far in their review as to say, and I quote them, based on the available literature from trials and long-term follow-up studies of baricitinib and upadacitinib, there exists insufficient evidence to extend the warnings of major cardiac events and venous thromboembolic events with tofacitinib to these drugs, meaning baricitinib and apatacitinib. So there's some view in the rheumatology literature that, okay, 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 tofacitinib might have this increased risk of venous thromboembolic events in rheumatoid arthritis patients, but there's no good data to suggest that those venous thromboembolic events apply to rheumatoid arthritis patients receiving baricitinib and apatacitinib. So this is a hint of where the field is heading. And you can be absolutely assured that any company wanting to bring a JAK inhibitor to market is thinking this way, that they desperately need good data to show that the oral surveillance trial does not necessarily apply to their drug. And that's what we'll be seeing in 2023, 2024, 2025, and beyond. So stay tuned. These, these next few years are going to be really important to understand disease specific side effects. So let's move on to talk about prevalence of alopecia areata across the world. Some studies are suggesting that the prevalence of alopecia areata in some countries is increasing. Season 2, Episode 3 of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast, we talked about some really nice data by Mackenzie and colleagues in JAMA Dermatology suggesting that the prevalence of alopecia areata in children increased over a period of about nine years of observation. From 2009 to 2019, the prevalence of alopecia areata in children increased in a very, very large database. So here we're looking at the prevalence of alopecia areata in Japan. And this study suggests that alopecia areata prevalence is increasing in Japan. So this study looked at patients that were registered in a Japan Medical Data Center claims database over 2012 to 2019. That's when patients were included in this study. And the prevalence of alopecia areata was calculated on a yearly basis. There were 61,899 patients with alopecia areata included in that database. And the author showed, amongst other findings, it was a pretty detailed study, but that the prevalence of alopecia areata in Japan increased from 0.16% in 2012 to 0.27% in 2019. Now, if you have a study of 100 patients, that change is 0.16 to 0.27 is okay, okay, maybe. But when you have 61,899 patients in a database, that's a pretty significant trend. The authors found that the most, important, most common comorbidities in alopecia areata were allergic rhinitis, atopic dermatitis, asthma, depression, anxiety, vitiligo, thyroid disease, rheumatoid arthritis. These were the conditions that were more common in patients with alopecia areata. And interestingly, Down syndrome was found to be a comorbidity that was more common in the more severe forms of alopecia areata. And we know that patients with Down syndrome, trisomy 21, have an increased risk of developing alopecia areata. So we move now to four final studies looking at the relationship between COVID-19 vaccination and COVID-19 infection and the development of alopecia areata. We've talked about 
COVID-19 infection. We've talked about the relationship between COVID-19 vaccination and infection and the ultimate development of alopecia areata in prior episodes. I'd like to review four really important studies. There is data accumulating that COVID vaccines may flare alopecia areata and trigger alopecia areata, even in patients that don't have the disease. The current viewpoint is that the risk is small. The current viewpoint is that the benefits of vaccination outweigh the risks. I'd like to present you some data because I think ultimately, in order to evaluate the risks and benefits, you need to develop your own framework. And the viewpoint widely held now is that the risk is very small. That this is something that you might not see all that often and patients should be encouraged to get vaccination. And so I'm not here to discuss the benefits of vaccination in COVID-19 and the benefits of vaccination in uh, helping the pandemic. What I'd like to review is the effects of vaccination on, on alopecia areata. I think that's really important as we all as practitioners go about forming a framework for the risks. And what do we advise patients with alopecia areata who have a flare with the COVID vaccine on the risks of a future flare? And what do we advise patients with alopecia areata who are about to go to the vaccination clinic tomorrow morning and have a vaccine? What is the risk they will have a flare? So let's begin. Tassoni and colleagues is a study from Italy published in Vaccines in September 2022. This was a study which set out to describe 24 patients who developed alopecia areata after receiving COVID-19 vaccines. There was 24 patients in this study, including 24 females and four males. There was a variety of different vaccines that were used in these 24 patients, including both mRNA and non-mRNA vaccines. The most common vaccine was the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine in 15 of the 24 patients, the Moderna vaccine in 5, and the adenovirus virus Chadox-1 vaccine in 4 patients. And so this is a study from Italy. 50 patients had coexistent autoimmune diseases. Again, 24 patients had alopecia areata after receiving a vaccine. 50% of these patients had a pre-existing autoimmune disease. Hashimoto's thyroiditis was the most common in nine of these patients. Celiac disease in two, and undifferentiated connective tissue disease in one. Hair loss occurred one to 16 weeks after vaccination. It seemed to be the fastest in patients receiving the Chadox-1 adenoviral vaccine after a mean of two weeks. With the Pfizer vaccine, it occurred after a mean of 5.7 weeks and 6.4 weeks with the Moderna mRNA vaccine. So I think this is an important point. We're going to see in subsequent studies that if patients do develop alopecia areata after vaccination, it generally occurs within two to eight weeks. And so if your patients are developing alopecia areata six months after a vaccine, it's less likely related to the vaccine as these vaccine-induced or associated COVID, uh, these vaccine-associated alopecia areata events generally occur within one 
to eight weeks. And so in 14 patients, the alopecia areata was a patchy form, and in 10 patients, it was a more severe form, alopecia totalis and universalis. So about half of patients are presenting with these more severe forms. In 16 patients, there was an improvement. The authors didn't go into exactly how much improvement, but there was an improvement with topical steroids, oral minoxidil, and cyclosporin. None of the patients were treated with JAK inhibitors. And so this study of 24 patients by Tassonian colleagues adds to the growing body of literature suggesting that, yes, COVID vaccines might cause alopecia areata or be associated with alopecia areata in a subset of patients. So, you know, we expect 0.4% or, or so, 0.3, 0.2% of people in the population to develop alopecia areata every year, just in general. And so we expect a large number of patients just to show up to clinic with alopecia areata because that's a common disease in the population. The key question here is, is there an increased risk with vaccination? And if there is, what is the number? These are challenging questions. We don't really have that data yet, but we have data to suggest that it's increased. Now, Nguyen and Tosti published a nice report in the JEADV, the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology, in August, looking at the risk of alopecia areata after COVID vaccination and after COVID infection. So this was a study which wasn't a controlled study, so we need to be aware of that as we go about interpreting the meaning of this study, but this study has some important messages. So the authors sent a survey to members of a social media group called Alopecia Areata Find a Cure. Members of the social media group Alopecia Areata Find a Cure were sent a survey. Hey members of Alopecia Areata Find a Cure, please complete our survey. And they were eligible to participate if they were diagnosed with Alopecia Areata, number one, and they had tested positive for COVID-19 or they had had a vaccination. 61% of patients completed the questionnaire. Of the 59 respondents who tested positive for COVID-19, 25 reported that they had alopecia areata symptoms after their infection. 15 of those patients said, hey, I had a new diagnosis of alopecia areata after testing positive for COVID-19. And nine patients said they had a relapse of their alopecia areata after COVID-19 infection. There were 113 patients that had COVID vaccines. 77 of those patients had alopecia areata symptoms after their vaccine. In 50% of those 77 patients, they had a new diagnosis of alopecia areata. And in 49% of patients, they had a relapse of their pre-existing alopecia areata. And the vaccine included mostly Pfizer and Moderna, but there was also the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. Most patients who had symptoms after vaccinations had symptoms after the second dose. That was 53% of patients with symptoms after vaccines. Some patients had symptoms after the first vaccine. Some patients had symptoms after the third vaccine. But the second dose was really a key dose that was associated with symptoms if they were going to occur. Remember, this is not a controlled trial. But this is a study of patients on this social media group 
that have alopecia areata. And on average, symptoms of alopecia areata occurred seven weeks after infection and eight weeks after COVID vaccines. So some helpful numbers. So all in all, this study supports the notion that vaccines and COVID infection can precipitate alopecia areata in patients that never had it before, and they can cause a flare of disease in patients that had it before. The study doesn't allow us to calculate the true incidence of alopecia areata. It's not designed to calculate that. It's a survey sent to patients with alopecia areata. It's a survey sent to patients on a social media group who are highly motivated to participate in surveys. So we certainly need more studies, but this study teaches us that flares are often occurring after the second dose of the vaccine in those that are going to develop flares. So there's something about the first dose priming the immune system, maybe, that flares occur after infection and after vaccines around seven, eight weeks. And so this is helpful information adding to this body of literature that maybe flares in patients with alopecia areata are not as uncommon as we have once thought. And I think in the early days of 2021, 2022, we had really thought that the chance of alopecia areata and the chances of alopecia areata flares after COVID mRNA vaccines and non-mRNA vaccines was a very rare event. I think we're coming to realize that maybe it's not a rare event and maybe it's occurring a little more commonly than we once realized. We desperately need numbers to know what that number truly is, but I think this is important. And I think we've once come to be of the view that the chances of a flare after a vaccine is really low. So if you have alopecia areata, you should get a vaccine. I think what we're realizing now is that, hmm, maybe in someone with alopecia areata, the risk of a flare is not, not zero. We don't really know the number, but it's not zero. I think we have to weigh that with the risks and benefits. It's not an easy decision. There are benefits of vaccines. If you live with someone who's at high risk, there's benefits of vaccines. If you have a comorbid condition, there are benefits of vaccines. We've had two and a half years or three years to review the benefits of vaccines and, and what COVID-19 has impacted society. So I'm not here to, to review that with you today, but what I'm here to review with you is what is the impact of COVID vaccination on a risk of a flare in a patient with alopecia areata? Many of our national organizations, many of our experts have been of the view, including myself, that the risk of alopecia areata and the risk of flares is very low. I think this view is changing somewhat with data that's accumulating that um, there is a risk. We desperately need the number. We desperately need to understand the risk factors. But it's not hovering close to zero. And that's my feeling. That, that gauge about the risk of alopecia areata flare after COVID vaccination is not sitting at zero. It's not sitting at 100%, but it's not sitting at zero. And I think that's what we all 
need to do as a, as a society is really come to understand this risk more. It's devastating when a patient with pre-existing alopecia areata has a flare and what, we'll, what we are learning and what we will come to see in, in the next report and the report after that is that if you develop a flare of alopecia areata after a vaccine, it can be a tough-to-treat flare. And if life has gotten back on track, your hair has grown back, life is good after getting your hair back. And you develop a flare that's very resistant to treatment. It's devastating. And so you decide where you want, where the pendulum is. The risk of a flare is low. Get your vaccine. I'm not here to discuss the benefits of the vaccine. What I am here to say is that you decide for yourself what the risk of a flare after COVID vaccination is in your mind and share that view with your patients. If you think the risk is low, share that it's low. If you think the risk is 2%, 6%, 8%, whatever number you want, go ahead and, and share it. We're going to see a study by Dr. Mesenkovska's group in just a minute that in stable patients on JAK inhibitors, 6% flared after COVID vaccination. Dr. Tosti taught us that in a highly biased group, filling out surveys in a social media group, that half of patients said they had a flare after their vaccine. It's not a controlled trial, but can't ignore that data. But there's lots of people out there that are saying they flared. And finally, we'll see in a study in just a minute that some patients flare and have very refractory disease that doesn't grow back with the treatments that once caused their hair to grow back. And so let's us, uh, let let's us all as a hair loss community develop a respect for mRNA vaccines on patients with alopecia areata. And I'm not saying that vaccination should not occur, not at all. I think we need to, as a community, come to understand what the risk is because we need to counsel patients. Because patients themselves need to come to determine the risk. And if 6% is low for your patient who lives with an elderly patient on chemotherapy, they need to know the risk. And it's up to us to help counsel patients with the best that we can. So let's take a look at a study of Babajuni and colleagues looking at COVID-19 vaccination-related exacerbations in moderate to severe alopecia areata. So it's a really nice study. Authors set out to better understand how patients that are on systemic therapy, JAK inhibitors, how they flare and if they flare after receiving COVID vaccines. So they studied 69 patients with alopecia areata. 49 received vaccines. 20 did not. So these were 69 patients on JAK inhibitors, pretty stable. 49 got vaccines, 20 didn't get vaccines, and they looked at the future, how these patients did. The 49 patients in the vaccine group were 25 men, 24 women. Average age was 37 years. In the unvaccinated group, there was 12 men, 8 women. Average age, 36 years. Here's the key point. Three of the 49 patients, 6%, of the patients 
on JAK inhibitors who were stable and got a vaccine flared. They lost more hair. So in patient one, the flare occurred two weeks after the first dose of the Pfizer vaccine. The SALT score, or the severity score, increased from 66 to 99. From pretty significant alopecia areata to almost total alopecia. In patient two, the flare occurred after two weeks again. This was after the second dose of the Pfizer vaccine, and the SALT score increased from 34 to 59. And in patient three, the flare occurred again two weeks after the first dose, but this was the Moderna vaccine, and the SALT score increased slightly from 62 to 70. And these three patients were well after the vaccine. They didn't have flare, they didn't have muscle pains, they didn't have fatigue. They weren't sick after their vaccine. Their, their alopecia areata worsened. So this is a helpful study. This is a wonderful study by Dr. Mesenkovska's group, which really gives us numbers. We desperately need numbers. We don't have numbers in our field. But 6% of stable patients who got the COVID vaccine flared. And the flare occurred quickly in two weeks. It doesn't necessarily happen after the first dose. These were three patients, two after the first dose, but one after the second dose. And we know from Dr. Tosti's survey-based study that it seems these flares are more common after the second dose, but they can occur after the first, they can occur after the third. Finally, a nice study by Chen and colleagues titled Intractable Alopecia Areata Following the Second Dose of COVID-19 Vaccine Vaccination Report of Two Cases Published in Dermatologic Therapy. The key word here is intractable. And again, the framework I'd like you to develop as you go about thinking about this is you have a patient in front of you. She's whatever age or he's whatever age you want to have as your patient. 34-year-old male, 27-year-old female, with alopecia areata, has had many things put on hold, has been quite devastated by their alopecia areata. They've got their hair back with your therapy. And it doesn't matter what it is. Jack inhibitor, squaric acid, a pulse prednisone. They've got their hair back. They've been stable for a long time. Life is good. They're happy. It's dramatically changed their outlook. They come to your office and they want to know, should I get a vaccine? Or I've had two doses of vaccine, should I get a third? Or I've had one dose of vaccine, should I get a second? They've gone on some websites for Alopecia Areata Foundations and it says, risk is small, we support getting vaccines. They want to know, what is the risk? of a flare if they get a vaccine. They want to know, what is the risk that I'm going to go back to having hair loss and the devastation that I felt when I had hair loss? These are not easy questions, and, but these are realities. And so they are really things that are at the heart of these discussions. Population-based data is really important. What is the percent? 6%, 2%, 1%? It's rare. It's common. It's super common. It's exceedingly rare. It's infinitesimally rare. It's fine to get a population-based approach, but you have a patient sitting in front of you who wants to know, what is my chances? 
they took a risk to come here to see you. There's a risk of one in 10 million or one in two million of getting hurt on the road with a traffic accident. There's a We deal with risk every single day, but they want to know what is the risk of a flare if I get a vaccine. That's the framework we're trying to develop today. And you have to develop your own number. And I think that's really important. I'm gonna send a lot of patients, for, recommend COVID vaccines for a lot of patients. But there's certain groups that I form a framework in that I don't think it's the right plan. And perhaps we need to consider another type of vaccine, um, perhaps a non-mRNA vaccine, or perhaps we need to encourage other ways of protecting patient with social distancing and mask use, etc., etc., etc. That's the framework I'd like you to develop today. There's no right or wrong answer. But here's two patients who flared after the COVID vaccine. There seems to be two flare patterns that we're seeing. One which occurs within one to two weeks and one which occurs within seven to eight weeks. Mesenkovska's study taught us that, hey, these three patients flared after two weeks. Dr. Tosti's survey-based study taught us that most patients flare after seven to eight weeks. There seems to be two groups. So let's take a look at this really nice study by Chen and colleagues. They present two patients with a history of alopecia areata who flared after two weeks of receiving their vaccine. Case one was a 29-year-old male who developed alopecia areata after his second dose of AstraZeneca. He progressed from a SALT score of 13, pretty low amount of hair loss, to a SALT score of 82, which is pretty widespread hair loss, difficult to camouflage, impossible to camouflage. He had a history of alopecia areata. He had been treated with oral steroids in the past, and he did great. He had been stable for seven months. He had this flare one week after his AstraZeneca vaccine. He was put on oral steroids again. Sir, you did well in the past with pulse steroids. Let's put you back on oral steroids again. But he hasn't been successful in regrowing hair after two months of follow-up. Second patient is a 26-year-old female with diffuse hair loss involving the scalp, eyebrows, and eyelashes, which occurred after the second dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. She, too, was stable uh, after pulsed steroid therapy, and she had a SALT score of 5, meaning barely detectable alopecia areata. But after the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, this patient developed alopecia universalis. She was treated with pulse steroid therapy again. You responded to steroid therapy in the past. Let's put you on steroid therapy again. She had four courses. She did not respond. So there's growing evidence. And I'd encourage you to dive into the 10 or 15 studies in the medical literature that vaccines can trigger alopecia areata de novo in patients with no history even with no history of alopecia areata, of autoimmune disease, but they can trigger alopecia areata flares in patients with prior alopecia areata. What's the risk? We don't know. We desperately need those numbers. Dr. Mesenkovska's study said that 6% of stable patients on JAK inhibitors had a flare. Tosti's studies suggested that, well, patients filling out a survey, which were highly motivated and biased, to, to, to go in and do the survey, half of them said they had a flare. What's the real number in the population? Well, we don't know, but we desperately need those numbers. We need those numbers to define the risk. 
We need those numbers so that the patient sitting in front of you next Thursday morning who wants to calculate, who wants to determine the risk themselves. I understand, doctor, that there's a 1% risk of a flare. That's too high for me. Or, I understand, doctor, there's a 30% chance of flare. That's still low for me. My mom has uh, chemotherapy and has cancer. A 30% risk is worth it. We need to know the numbers so we can advise our patients so they can decide what the risk and benefit means to them. That's really what we're working on here. We need more studies in this area. Such an important area. COVID-19 will be with us a while. The vaccine will be with us for a long time, forever, perhaps. So this is an area which is evolving. This is such an important area. Let's together as a hair loss community to develop some agreement on what all this information means and some understanding and guidelines on how we advise our patients. For now, it's up to each of us as a practitioner to, to, to interpret what this information means so that we can guide our patients. And it all comes down to not guiding patients with alopecia areata, it's guiding the patient, the patient in front of you, the patient on the phone who wants to know what to do tomorrow morning when they're going for their vaccine. So we've reviewed 13 studies. We've talked about high minoxidil concentrations. Does 15% work better than five? Does 10% work better than five? Maybe, just maybe it does. Three studies guide us, not a lot. One study suggests, no, 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 no. Use 5%, it's way better than 10%. So not every study shows that, but the hint is that it does. Maybe side effects are increased. We talked about JAK inhibitors for treating balding. Doesn't seem to do much in a study by Dr. Mesenkovska. Study of 18 males. Maybe it prevents hair loss, who knows, but it's certainly not regrowing hairs. What about Botox for treating androgenetic hair loss? Well, maybe it does. Uh, a small study by Dr. English and Ruiz suggests that, yeah, maybe there's data that suggests that it might improve hair. What about PRP for treating androgenetic hair loss? Well, two meta-analyses we reviewed suggest that, yeah, it might help. Dr. Gupta's meta-analysis suggested that PRP monthly is going to be better than PRP yearly. PRP with a double spin method is going to work better than PRP with a single spin. PRP with women works better than PRP with men. PRP with younger patients works better than PRP with older patients. Again, check out that meta-analysis. Studies of PRP are generally not great. They lack controls. They're limited duration. Uh, and study design is uh, questionable in some. Tough to do these meta-analyses, but this is a study which gives us some guidance. PRP seems to work in women in a meta-analysis of seven studies. Dr. Delova published a very nice study teaching us that if you think fluid retention does not occur with 0.25 milligrams, you're wrong. 40-year-old woman with FFA developed fluid retention in the feet, around the heart, around the lungs, around all the soft tissues, which we call anasarca, with 0.25. She had a good outcome in the end by stopping oral minoxidil being treated with diuretics, and Dr. Glova in her paper even suggests that she may even go back on Roman Oxidil at a lower frequency. Check out the paper, it's free online. And Dr. Gupta teaches us that as you go up on the dose of oral minoxidil, you get better outcomes. 
you get thicker hair a little bit, but you get more hair, but you also increase the chance of hypertrichosis by 18%, and you increase the chances of cardiovascular side effects by 5% for every one milligram you increase. We talked about the emerging field of disease-specific evaluation of JAK inhibitors. And in patients with atopic dermatitis, doesn't appear to be an increased risk of venous thromboembolism in a study of a meta-analysis of 499,000 patients. Is there an increased risk of venous thromboembolism in alopecia areata patients? Well, in 1,100 patients on baricitinib versus placebo, doesn't seem to be. What about in 200,000 patients on baricitinib against placebo? We don't have that data. What about JAK inhibitors in frontal fibrosing alopecia? We don't have that data. Study looking at the rising prevalence of alopecia areata in Japan, which complements a body of literature suggesting that in many parts of the world, alopecia areata is increasing. And then we spent quite some time talking about vaccines and alopecia areata. What is the risk of, of, of de novo alopecia areata after a vaccine? We don't know. What is the risk of an alopecia areata flare after receiving a vaccine? Well, in stable patients on JAK inhibitors, it may be 6%. Other than that, we don't know. Please dive into the literature to create your own number, figure out your own risk. Is it a very, 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 very low risk in your mind? Is it a very, very, very low risk? Is it a very low risk? Is it a low risk? Is it a medium risk? Is it a high risk? What's your number? Dive into the literature, come up with your own number. Let's, let's as a hair loss community continue to discuss this. And let's realize that vaccines save lives. Let's realize that there's many benefits of these vaccines. Let's have healthy discussion. Let's realize that there's many ways to uh, address the pandemic. Let's realize that this subject matter is fraught with many different emotions. But let's look at the data in the hair loss literature and the data in the infectious disease literature and let's put science to good use to figure out how we can advise the patient who comes into clinic tomorrow and wants your advice. That's what we do as professionals. We help people and we help people with good science and we allow the patient to determine what is the risk and benefit for them. Do you take the vaccine? Do you not? Do you wear a mask? Do you not? Do you social distance? Do you not? These are tough questions. And back next week, we're talking about telogen effluvium, traction alopecia, trichotillomania, and tinea capitis. It's the second Monday of November, and that's when we address these four T's. I look forward to seeing you back on the next episode of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Thanks very much.